Welcome to Boiled Down. I'm your host, Greg Astley, Director of Government Affairs for the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. And joining me today from the Orla team is Lori Little, Director of Communications. Welcome, Lori. Thank you, Greg. So, Lori, do you have any big plans this weekend? Actually, I do. My son is going to be competing in a jiu-jitsu tournament over in Salem. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's very excited about it, and so am I, just to watch the little guy... Uh, go up against, gosh, seven or eight other competitors. It's a now, big tournament. I know you call him a little guy, but he's, what, 12 now? He's not he, a little guy anymore. He is not little anymore. In fact, he's going to be taller than his mom probably another year. Yeah? Yeah. I don't know if that's saying okay. a lot, but, but that's that's one milestone I'm, you got to get through, right? I'm the height-challenged one <laughs> in the family. Luckily, his dad is a bit taller. Well, we'll hope that he gets up to that point. Any uh, any special place you guys are going to go eat this weekend while you're in Salem? You know, I can recommend a few places. You could, yeah. There's oh, there's so many good places there. Um, but I will probably go to B Dubs Buffalo Wild Wings because hey, it's the, my son's favorite restaurant. So, also one of the restaurants that we have signed up as one of our food vendors for Taste Oregon this year, actually. Yes, it is. Actually, we've got a couple of great restaurants that are going to be there. Gambaretti's Italian Restaurant, Pelican Brewing Company. Always another, a favorite, yeah. Another favorite. What was the last one we got? Uh, Ritter's Housemade Foods. Yeah, also right there in Salem. Very excited to have them on board. This will be the first year they'll be uh, a vendor for Taste Oregon, which is probably the most highly anticipated legislative reception during the uh, the legislative session years. Uh, everybody loves it when they can come and get great food from the Restaurant and Lodging Association. Well, I've heard that too because uh, we actually offer, you know, great food from our, our restaurant members out there. It's not, not going to be your uh, rubber chicken meals. Absolutely not. So, and always have plenty of it. So, uh, that's going to be Wednesday, February 21st down at the Salem Convention Center. And as an Orla member, if you want to come and engage with lawmakers, maybe take an opportunity to be heard on some key issues. Uh, it's a great way to do that and get some one-on-one time with them. So we'll be at the Salem Convention Center for the Taste Oregon Legislative Reception on Wednesday, February 21st. All right. Well, today we have a, a really great interview. We're going to get into pay equity with Jennifer Nelson and Ann Milligan. But first, want to make sure you're getting the most out of your membership. And to help you do that, we like to highlight a benefit that you may or may not be aware of. So for members, uh, you can get now a discount um, on your workers' comp uh, through SAFE. You get an additional 10% if you meet the group eligibility requirements. And all you have to do is contact your agent and ask for an Orla group quote. Or you can contact SAFE directly at 888 5880. And again, that's an additional 10% off your workers' comp if you qualify. So make sure you make that call today. If you're not a member, visit OregonRLA.org where you can join and you can start taking advantage of all the benefits that we have to offer. Well, now I'm very excited to introduce our guests. We've got uh, Jennifer Nelson with Ogletree Deacons and Ann Milligan with Fisher Phillips. Welcome, both of you. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for being here. We appreciate it. Welcome to Boiled Down. Um, I think we're going to just go ahead and jump right in. We're talking about pay equity today. And, you know, for you, Jennifer, uh, I want to make sure we all understand Oregon's had a pay equity law on the books for like decades, haven't they? So what's different about this one? 
Right. So that's true. Um, so essentially what this law does is expand the protected classes to which uh, pay equity applies. So before it was really uh, the law prohibited sex-based pay discrimination, and now that has been expanded to add 10 protected classes, which include race, color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, national origin, marital status, veteran status, disability, and age. So essentially all of the protected statuses uh, under Oregon's employment discrimination law have been put in play with regards to pay equity. So kind of just bringing it up to the standards that, that were already in place for, for that. Correct. Okay, great. Um, and so one of the issues that's come up with this as well has been the salary history, that the question of whether or not you can ask someone what their past salary has been and whether or not that might be discriminatory. Um, and so, Anne, can employers with can they ask prospective employees their last salary or their salary history at this time no that is completely illegal in oregon now as of october 6 2017 you can't ask not just the salary question anymore you can't ask about an applicant's past pay at all so that means it needs to come off your job application forms and it needs to not come up in the interview before you make that bona fide offer of employment that includes a salary or an hourly pay option. Now, there is a, a provision there, though, that once you've offered someone a position, you can then ask about it. Is that correct? That's right. But, you know, what? what's the point Right. at, at, <laughs> at that point? At, at that time, you've given them their salary. And so, yeah, I guess it's just whether or not you're checking yourself to see if you've overpaid or underpaid too much. Yeah. Or, you know, it's a good feeling for, yeah, how the market is going. Are you in line with the market? Because even if you've got that information, you can't base someone's pay on their past pay. So it's semi-useless knowledge. Okay. And and what what was the reasoning behind not asking about someone's past salary history specifically? So that's kind of a, a two-part issue. The past case law in the Ninth Circuit, you know, as you can imagine, we're a hot mess over here in the Ninth Circuit, right. right? We've got California, Washington, Oregon. We're all sort of just doing our own thing in the country. And um, the Ninth Circuit was saying that it was okay to base past pay or current pay on past pay. But, you know, some of the district courts had been disagreeing and saying, you know, we don't want for any employer to be in a situation where maybe they're not intentionally discriminating against an applicant and setting pay. But maybe their previous employer was discriminatory against women mm. or people of color. And so we don't want people down the line benefiting from past acts of discrimination. Okay. So they could have been either artificially inflating or maybe deflating someone's salary based on uh, some sort of discrimination, which then would affect their future earnings if you had asked about past salary. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Um, well, so Jennifer, are are the employers prohibited from paying two people who do essentially the same job a different wage? Because I know that came up for us as we went around the state and talked with folks in our regional conversations. There was a lot of concern about that. Right. So the answer to the short answer is no. Um, the law does provide exception an, an exception based on a bona fide factor that is job related and based on an enumerated factor within the law. So um, seniority, a merit system, the work location, you know, different 
different localities have uh, different standards of living, so you can have higher pay there if you can prove that it's based on that. Um, the uh, individual's education level, their training, their experience, or some kind of combination of those. So it's sort of with any employment decision, you know, when you're terminating somebody or when you're deciding whether or not to give them a write-up. If you can if you can show that it's based on something that is not discriminatory, mm-hmm. you're going to be okay. Just ensure that you have that documented or you have that in your um, you know in your arsenal to be able to defend the decision should the decision be called into question. So I know employee reviews, and I've I've been a manager before, and I've done them for people uh, can be sometimes subjective. Are they considered uh, I guess a qualifier if you're going to pay somebody a different wage from somebody else who has the same position? They can be, but you better make dang sure that the (laughs) supervisor who is giving the review and making whatever subjective comments are made, that that individual is not, um, does not have some kind of discriminatory bias that the review is some kind of pretext and is pretextually covering, if that makes sense. So I know that we'll get into the equal pay analysis, but a piece of that is ensuring that your supervisors, when they are making decisions that will play into what somebody is paid, are doing it on a non-discriminatory basis and they have bona fide factors that they can base the decision on. Okay. I was going to say, I'm sure we could do an entire podcast just on employee reviews as well. Um, You know, what what you base that on. and, And like you said, it has to have some um, some basis in you know f- merit or factual or metrics or something that you can measure uh, as opposed to simply Jennifer does a great job she's always smiling kind of the, the oh, comments I, right that's exactly tr- that's exactly <laughs> right yes but but that's that's very true you know okay. I mean and good manager training is always something that I think that that employers should keep at the forefront of their minds and to ensure that it is done on a relatively regular basis you know annually uh, semi-annually to ensure that um, managers are aware of the things that they can and cannot consider and that those the the illegal considerations are not weighing into any decisions that they're making a, on on the front lines. Okay. And you mentioned uh, training, and, and I want to go back to something that you talked about earlier, taking that salary history off of your job applications, but also... I would imagine that if you're doing an interview with a prospective employee, not asking that question and training whoever's doing the hiring to not ask the question about salary history is going to be important as well. Right. And that's going to be a really hard thing to train your managers on. And that's why, you know, you need to be doing it on the regular because asking what somebody used to make is, you know, just as common as asking what someone's hobbies are or mm-hmm. what their name is. It's it's always been a part of the process. And so practicing those interviews views and training your managers is absolutely critical to make sure that somebody doesn't ask it by accident and then you have information that you really wish that you didn't have because how are you going to document and prove that you didn't use that information to set that person's pay illegally yeah yeah it's uh it's definitely a pitfall we have to be careful of so um well good i'm gonna take a break right there real quick and when we come back we got a few other questions we want to cover a few other topics but uh, we'll be right back with uh, jennifer nelson with ogletree deacons and ann milligan from fisher phillips are you in need of quality food handler training and certification orla is one of the largest and first providers of online food handler training in oregon approved by the state orla's food handler training is quick and simple to complete with online courses available 24 7. Training and certification costs only $9, and the card is valid statewide for three years. Get started today at OregonFoodHandler.com. 
All right, welcome back to Boiled Down. My name is Greg Astley. I'm your host, Director of Government Affairs for the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association today. And again, our guests are Jennifer Nelson with Ogletree Deacons and Ann Milligan with Fisher and Phillips, LLP. And Jennifer, if folks want to get in touch with you, and if you want them to get in touch with you, how would you like them to do that? I would love people to get in touch with me. Otherwise, my day is boring. Um, <laughs> so you can get in touch with me. Uh, my direct line actually at work is 503-552-2169. And my email address is Jennifer with two N's, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R, dot Nelson, N-E-L-S-O-N, at OgletreeDeacons.com. And that's funny. I, I can understand having to spell Nelson, but mm-hmm. do you feel like you have to spell Jennifer as well? Y- yes, because people ask me if there are two F's in it, which I've never I've never met anybody with two F's in Jennifer, but evidently it's confusing. Yeah, so. when I was younger, people used to ask me how many G's in uh, my name, and I, I would say two because <laughs> there's one at the beginning and there's one at the end, right, but they go. meant G-R-E-G-G, so I, I learned quickly <laughs> after that. So, Anne, how about you? If, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? So uh, you can call me, 503-205-8055. That's my direct line at the office. And you can also email me at a milligan just M-I-L-L-I-G-A-N, just like Gilligan, but with an M, <laughs> at fisherphillips.com. I will never forget that now. That's <laughs> that's going to be easy to remember. So, Well, good. Well, thank you again both for being here. I appreciate it. We're talking about uh, the new pay equity law in Oregon, uh, what it means to our listeners and to our members. And I know... Jennifer, in reading the law, it seems like the penalties are a little more severe now uh, and a little more costly to employers for any kind of violations. Can you tell us a little bit about the specific penalties and what's so different about this law from any previous pay equity law and penalties? Right. So, you know, going back to your previous question about what's different about this law, it's really just an expansion of the classes to which it applies, Mm -hmm. which is why it's I think um, it's certainly expanded the people that it applies to. The penalties are the same um, with with one with one component. So essentially, um, an employee who wants to allege or who alleges pay dis- pay equity discrimination will be able to file a complaint for unpaid wages with the Bureau of Labor and, and Industries or in Oregon Circuit Court or both if they so choose. Um, If they're successful, the employee could be awarded two years of back pay at the employee's regular rate of pay, compensatory and punitive damages, and attorney's fees if they're successful. So what's more, though, is the law provides that each time an employee is paid constitutes a potential violation, making making alleged pay disparity on an ongoing, making an alleged pay disparity an ongoing unlawful employment practice with a continually renewing statute of limitations. So essentially what that means is every time you pay an employee that constitutes a violation if they later prove that they were not being paid equitably so it it basically just keeps renewing the one-year statute of limitations that the law provides for um, the employee to file a lawsuit there's also class action exposure uh, as the law provides for employees to bring claims for unpaid wages not only on their own behalf but for on behalf of similarly similarly situated employees so i would imagine that we'll start seeing um class actions as well in the coming years. Yeah, I was going to say that the class action seems to be a more popular route for people to take these days. Uh, going back real quick to your um, every time you pay an employee, it's a it's an occurrence and so a potential violation or you know penalty. Uh, now, when you say each time you pay them, does that mean each time they receive a check or a deposit? So, you know, if it's every two weeks that you make payments or is it literally every day that they work is an occurrence? As a, as a as a time that you pay them Does every that time sense? that they're paid every time that they're right. paid so right. okay so 
you know, and one of the questions that we're getting quite a lot of is, well, the law went into effect on October 6th, but we there isn't a private right of action until January 1st of 2019, meaning that's when employees can start filing a lawsuit. But because the statute of limitations renews every time you pay these people and it went into effect on October the 6th, that means that essentially beginning January 1 of this year, you can start accruing liability now if okay. you if the employee is able to prove later on that there was a pay equity disparity. So um, getting ducks in a row now is is better than waiting until the employees can bring a lawsuit. Sure. Well, yeah, because it sounds like in that case, an employer may not even realize that something's happening because an employee is not bringing a lawsuit at this time because right. it's not enforceable, but they may be accruing all those occurrences, in which case you may end up with quite a few uh, that you're going to have to deal with come January 1st, 2019. Correct. Wow. Okay. Well, and is there anything that employers can do to defend themselves or help mitigate their potential liability on these issues? There, There is for sure. And I, I just wanted to add a little bit to Jennifer's great answer. And that is, you know, one of the things that makes Oregon's law so unique from the Federal Equal Pay Act that, you know, President Kennedy signed into law however many years ago is that this statute doesn't just allow for the pay wage difference as unpaid wages. It also tacks onto that an equal amount as liquidated damages and compensatory damages, which is, you know, the mental anguish and distress that we all kind of like tease each other about, and then punitives as well, in addition to attorney's fees and costs, both for defending yourself and then for the plaintiff's attorney as well. So not only the wage disparity between what they feel like they should have been paid and what they were paid, but then the back wages and the punitive damages and, you know, maybe even attorney fees and, and yeah. So, yeah. wow, uh, that's a lot to deal with. Okay. So then what can we do? So what, what can, can we, we do, do to not have that happen? So I would love for all of my employers to not have that happen to them. And the way that we would do it is we would do a, a pay analysis audit, you know, at, at my firm, we actually have a special software that's specifically built to run the data across all 10 protected classes. And uh, this is certainly something that if you have a sophisticated enough HR professional at your workplace, you could do yourself, but 10 protected classes is a lot of analysis to do, you know, to compare all disabled people to non-disabled people and all men to all women and the different, um, just all of the different groups seems pretty onerous to me but if you do the analysis if you do all this hard work the way that it ultimately pays off is that you get kind of the world's smallest safe harbor right it is a safe harbor so that you aren't exposed to the mental anguish damages and you're not exposed to the punitive damages but you will still have to pay that wage differential if there was one okay but but of all the three that's probably the least amount that you're going to end up paying, I would guess, right? The wage differential as opposed to, say, punitive damages, which can oftentimes be astronomical. Right, because, I mean, punitive damages, what are they supposed to do? I mean, the word suggests it. It's supposed to punish. So what is it going to be based on? Just whatever a jury feels? Right. How upset they are that particular day? I, I you know, I wouldn't want my my employers to be exposed to damages based on, you know, whether or not a juror had their breakfast that day or their dog mm. got hit by a car. Sure. And so having it simply limited to numerically provable financial differences and not things like emotional damages or punitive damages, which are 
way squishier. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, what are some of the, the potential pitfalls that might be associated with conducting an equal pay analysis? So, you know, if you do the pay analysis and you find out that you're paying people incorrectly and it's not a privileged audit, which privilege just means, you know, the, the work that Jennifer and I do is privileged. It, it can't be subject to discovery and litigation. Mm-hmm. It's private. But if you do it yourself and you find that you have all these pay differentials and then you don't fix it, then you've pretty much set yourself up for pretty harsh punitive damages. Okay. So working with an attorney like you or Jennifer means that you've got that kind of uh, attorney-client confidentiality, that privilege of not having to share the information, whereas if you do it yourself, it can be subject to discovery. Exactly. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah, and then to add to that, I think um, Anna's right, having, uh, you know, contacting either a law firm, um, I know that she was saying that Fisher and Phillips does them, my, f- my firm does them as well, but one thing in thinking through and talking through um, the how to conduct the pay, equal pay analyses, and, you know, I've been on the phone with a number of different uh, professional organizations within Oregon that actually already do these for um, sex-based discrimination uh, type of inquiries. And one thing that we've been talking about is what do you do with um, – with uh, protected classes that are either not self-evident or self-reported and the kind of the pitfalls that you could run into with that with just inquiring you know about somebody's religion when they're not comfortable with with um, giving that information or their sexual orientation if they're not comfortable with giving that information and so being really careful around that um, and seeking some kind of professional advice uh, before conducting these analyses particularly if you have larger organizations the more diverse your workforce is etc um i think i think that it's it's best to do that because there are all kinds of additional pitfalls that could that could begin to arise that um that weren't really you know apparent to you when you're beginning on uh, embarking on an analysis like that even if you have the best of intentions sure so yeah i I guess the analogy i would use in that case is something that i used to tell uh, my clients in a previous career which is I know how to put a Band-Aid on, but if it's a real serious injury, I know that I should go to a doctor. Um, so there are certain cases where you can do things yourself and in others where you really should seek you know, the advice of an expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, this sounds like one of those that would be beneficial to get the advice of an expert. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, my law firm actually has been putting together a pay equity practice group. Um, I'm a member of that and nationwide to sort of stay abreast of all of the different pay equity laws that are going into effect because Oregon is not alone in this. And so um, it's certainly a a rapidly developing area that uh, that it takes some help navigating. So well, we talked a little bit about this, but the law taking effect. So it's October 6, 2017. We had the salary history. You can't ask that question anymore. Uh, January 1st, 2019 is actually when the um, <clears throat> punitive piece can, can take effect. Is that correct? The, the um, I don't know the best way to say that. But right. <laughs> well, it's, it's so the legal way, the legalese behind it is that that's when employees begin to have a private right of action, mm-hmm. meaning that's when they can start suing you. Um, but like I was saying before, the law technically went into effect 90 days after the uh, legislative ses- session closed, which mm-hmm. was in July. So that, that put that at August, October 6th. So essentially the law is in effect. Employees just can't sue yet. Okay. Um, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be 
taking conducting the equal pay analyses, ensuring that you know there aren't any pay disparities that could expose you to liability once January 1, 2019 hits, and making sure that you conduct these equal pay analyses so that you can avail yourselves of the safe harbor that um, Anne was just speaking about. Uh, is you know it's it's certainly an ounce of prevention prevention is worth whatever whatever that saying is pound but it's cure. certainly a pound of cure um <laughs> it's it's certainly worthwhile to to start looking at that now okay and we have a, another date 2024 is that right seven years out why is that significant so 2024 is when uh, employees have begin to have a private right of action for the salary inquiry piece. So while you cannot ask people about their salary history now, they won't be able to sue you if you did until January 1, 2024. Um, so, you know, again, it, it, the practice should stop now. The law has gone into effect and uh, it is prohibited, but we won't start seeing lawsuits until 2024 on that. So. Okay, so that's a little ways out, but again, trying to get ahead of the curve on that one is going to be important. Right. Right. So um, I'll just throw this out to both of you then. Is there anything else that you think our listeners should know about the law and anything we haven't already covered? So there, there's just one more thing that we didn't really cover already. One of the other ways that Oregon's law is more expansive than the Federal Pay Act and just kind of unique from other laws is that under the Federal Equal Pay Act, the work needs to be substantially similar, which basically means exactly the same job, which is a higher threshold, right? That's a pretty high threshold. You need to actually be doing the same thing. But under our law, it's comparable character. So people who are kind of just doing similar things, but not exactly the same. So that's a complicated part of the analysis that also you know, mitigates in favor of reaching out to Jennifer or reaching out to me because we might be able to help you do that comparable character analysis and figure out, you know, even though these people have different job titles, maybe they are doing work of comparable character and they should be comparators in determining what their pay should be. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And that can, you know, those those kind of analyses can go hand in hand with looking at whether or not somebody is appropriately characterized as administratively exempt, for example, um, in your workplace. And so, you know, these these kind of, of analyses that go into wage-related questions can sort of dovetail with other analyses that can and should be done um, for other areas of wage and hour law. And so I think that that's a really good point and something that people should be aware of. Um, one other thing that we've been getting a lot of questions on and thinking about quite a bit are whether or not you should ask what people's salary expectations are, mm. not necessarily whether or not th what, what their what their prior pay is. And the sort of general consensus of people I've been talking to is just don't do that either. Okay. Because, and by that either, I mean don't ask about what their salary expectations are because the argument that, um, that we can see that could be made is, well, if they were being discriminated against on a you know, based on uh, whatever protected status it is in the way that they were paid before, perhaps that is driving the way that they're what their salary expectations are now. And so are you sort of extending that kind of discriminatory behavior by asking what the salary expectations are? While that isn't technically built into the law and that's certainly sort of on the fringes of the consideration, I always say, you know, best practice is to just, just you know, stay away from those questions at all. Err on the safe having, side. So yeah. in other words, don't ask somebody, what do you hope to make? Right. Right. Okay. 
Great. Right. And that, that is a really hard point because it's counterintuitive. You know, how are you, how are you going to set this salary or pay? But, um, you know, on the state of Oregon's own website, they've specifically stated in their employment section that they have um, removed the desired salary expectation component of the application because of the Oregon Equal Pay Act. Mm -hmm. So clearly the state of Oregon has already taken exactly that position. It's nice to know they're following the law just like the rest of us have to then, I guess, right? (laughs) Yay, state of Oregon. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I want to thank you both once again for being here, Ann Milligan with Fisher & Phillips and Jennifer Nelson with Ogletree & Deacons. We're going to take another quick break, and we'll come back with our Advocacy Watch. Get your staff boot handler trained and certified by Oregon's highest quality training provider. Orla provides easy-to-follow, interactive training that is valid statewide for three years. Employees can get the state-mandated food handler card they need on their schedule with online courses available 24-7. And now for only $9. Go to OregonFoodHandler.com today. Welcome back. It's time for Advocacy Watch. This is where we boil down some of the local, state, and national government affairs issues that you should be aware of. Joining me again is Lori Little, Director of Communications for the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. Welcome back, Lori. Thank you very much. So uh, the first thing we want to talk about is on the local level, and it has to do with lodging taxes. Uh, The city of Oakland recently held a reading on an ordinance to enact a new lodging tax of 8% in the city limits. Now, this was despite not having any hotels, motels, or lodging properties other than a one-room online vacation rental. Uh, their idea was that they wanted to get ahead of it so that when they did finally have some sort of lodging properties, uh, they'd be able to start collecting that tax. Orla sent a letter of opposition uh, after reading a quote from the mayor to that effect. And um, after that, the city councilors decided not to enact that ordinance, which was good news for us. So we know several citizens also spoke in opposition to the lodging tax. In fact, they were citing the desire for Oakland to be a more welcoming destination for visitors and businesses. Yeah, uh, they had a restaurant that closed recently in the city of Oakland, and I think some of the local folks were worried that uh, this was going to keep away even more uh, businesses that might bring tourists to the area. So um, it's something we'll keep an eye on in in the town of Oakland, Oregon, but uh, for now, uh, there's no lodging tax. Yeah, also on... The, the local front heard about Cannon Beach City Council rejecting Airbnb's voluntary collection agreement, the BCA. Yeah, that's the first time that's actually happened in the in the state of Oregon, to my knowledge. The, uh, the city manager decided that uh, it wasn't worth not getting the data from Airbnb to collect the tax from them, and so they uh, rejected that. Uh, They also, I think, cited the fact that there is a bill coming up in this short legislative session that's going to help kind of close a loophole uh, with regards to Airbnb and collection of the lodging tax. Isn't there also, I mean, it's it's a challenge, you know, to to audit the short-term rentals. Um, It's difficult to enforce and regulate when you don't have that information. Yeah, exactly. If you don't know who you're supposed to be collecting the tax from, it's hard to go out and get it. But there are tools that cities and counties can use, and Orla is always happy to help point people in the right direction if they're willing to look into that with um, places like uh, the Airbnb uh, DNA uh, software that's available. Speaking of the short session, uh, we've only got 35 days starting February 5th for Oregon legislators to conduct their business. 
And we're encouraging the Oregon legislature to focus on some of the housekeeping issues uh, and not really tackle any major legislation. A short, a short session, in our opinion, uh, is really not the place to be looking at um, major bills or laws that need to be passed. And so some of what they discuss will depend on the ballot measure that's being voted on uh, as we speak, uh, ballot measure 101, the health care tax, and whether it passes or fails. Uh, if it does fail, the legislature is likely going to need to find several hundreds of millions of dollars for health care in Oregon. Hmm. Yeah, we're, we're uh, not going to be seeing so much of you here in the office, Greg. You're going to spend a, lo a lot of time in Salem. That's true, uh, but it'll be nice because I won't have that commute every day. So it's just a yeah. short drive to the Capitol for me. There you go. So I know that... Uh, Orly's going to be focused on uh, a couple of major areas uh, in this short session. Yeah, uh, as we mentioned just a minute ago, the um, Airbnb loophole. Um, so Orla, in partnership with the League of Oregon Cities, is going to be pursuing a legislative fix to make sure that online travel platforms like Airbnb pay all the applicable lodging taxes when they're collecting payment for the lodging stays. Uh, the fix would treat the, these online travel platforms the same way as any other lodging company uh, collecting the revenue for lodging stays, including other online travel companies like Expedia and Priceline. And we're pretty excited about working with the League of Oregon Cities to fix that piece of legislation. Yeah, that's pretty important, important uh, you know, to our industry, and we keep talking about uh, ways to level the playing field there. So. Yeah, uh, another partnership that we're going to have is with uh, the Oregon Wine Growers and BMI, actually. Uh, we're pursuing stronger protections for uh, restaurant operations in particular uh, against predatory music licensing investigators. Um, so in order to make sure that restaurants are paying the appropriate fees for licensed music playing in their establishment, music licensing companies enlist the help of investigators. And some of them have been reported to harass or threaten restaurant operators, come in when they're particularly busy, um, and it makes it difficult for them to, to conduct business. Yeah, uh, predatory music licensing investigators, it sounds pretty pretty serious. It, well, it is. Um, it's, it's essentially someone coming in telling you that you're playing their music and that you need to join uh, their music licensing service in order to continue to do that or you face some pretty stiff penalties and, and possible legal action. So uh, we just want to tighten up the rules and regulations for how restaurant operators can be approached about their music licensing arrangements and uh, make sure that we uh, get uh, some sort of an amicable resolution of laws governing the commercial use of copyrighted music. And again, we're excited to be partnering with the Oregon Wine Growers and BMI, one of the music licensing companies on that legislation. Sounds good. Yeah. As always, uh, we're interested in making sure we protect the lodging tax dollars as well. Uh, so we want to make sure that those dollars are being spent on tourism marketing and promotion appropriately uh, and they're not being misspent uh, in other ways. And we know that the marketing and promotion has shown to lead to increased visitor traffic, which means more heads and beds. And that has a greater economic impact in Oregon uh, than the money that might be spent on other projects or facilities, for example. Yeah. You know, um, this this last session, of course, the very big issue that we were working on was the, the scheduling issue. Um, you know, w what kind of labor regulations uh, do you think are coming up for this session? Hopefully none, actually. <laughs> it would be a nice surprise in a short session if we didn't have to deal with anything major. A few years ago, of course, we had the minimum wage increase. 
Uh, we've already got paid sick leave and the scheduling law that you just mentioned. So uh, there has been some talk about uh, looking at paid family leave. In fact, the House will probably introduce a bill on paid family leave during this short session. Uh, but the hope is that the Senate won't take it up and that it'll be something that would be discussed in the longer 2019 session, which would give us time to really vet it out completely. Yeah, doesn't uh, Washington and California, they have the paid family leave they do. Uh, Washington just passed theirs this last year, and uh, California's had one for a little bit longer. But um, we're looking at both of those as uh, models or something that we can uh, try to figure out what's working for them and what's not, which is another reason to wait until 2019, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Well, on the national scene, uh, tip pooling continues to be at the forefront uh, for the Restaurant Association, both nationally and here in Oregon. Uh, The U.S. Department of Labor recently proposed rescinding a rule that would not allow states like Oregon without a tip credit to pool tips among the front of the house and the back of the house employees. Uh, They had an initial 30-day comment period, which opened December 5th. That was extended to a 60-day, and it's going to end February 5th. If you go to OregonRLA.org, you can find a link uh, to comment directly to the U.S. Department of Labor on the tip pooling uh, rescinding. So... Yes, I know that they have received a ton of comments uh, over this past uh, 30 days plus, but uh, we, we certainly encourage our members to uh, comment if you haven't done so already. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, just a couple of points to remember. Um, the government regulations on restaurants are really hitting Oregonians' pocketbooks uh, as menu prices increase, but it also squeezes the margins and the industry job opportunities. And so, Supporting the importance of tip pooling is really crucial in the protection of waitstaff occupations, uh, especially when you have single parents raising children with only part-time availability. Uh, It's one of the few ways that they can actually make a living wage. And if nothing is done here in Oregon and with this um, tip pooling uh, rescinding of the law, full-service restaurants, we really feel, with waitstaff are going to continue to disappear Uh, in place of more limited-service restaurants or counter-service restaurants uh, where the orders get taken at the counter and less staff are needed, which means fewer jobs here in the state of Oregon. So really important uh, that we can get this. And as always, um, we'll keep you updated on our court case that we're hoping the U.S. Supreme Court will take up as well uh, related to this. So. Well, for more information or to get involved, you can visit uh, www.oregonrla.org backslash GA. Or uh, you can email us here at info at oregonrla.org. Keep the emails coming. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. If you have any questions or comments about today's podcast, please let us know that. Uh, And what's going on in your area? That's our best source of information when local operators can tell us what they're uh, looking at in their area and what's coming down the pipe. So. Once again, I'd like to say thank you to Jennifer Nelson with Ogletree Deacons and Ann Milligan with Fish Phillips LLP and to Lori Little, uh, Orla's Director of Communications, for joining me today. I am your host, Greg Astley, Director of Government Affairs for Orla. Thanks for listening.